I'm Umbreen Khan, and this is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Each week, we explore the beliefs shaping our world. Summer. It's a time when lots of folks gather, including faith groups. And many of these gatherings take place without generating a single headline. But for Southern Baptists, it tends to be a different story for the last few years. And this year was no different. A few weeks before their national convention in Anaheim, California, the denomination's leadership was back in the news. This time, it was the release of a report detailing evidence of mishandling of sexual abuse allegations over the last two decades. The report was conducted by Guidepost Solutions, a third party commissioned by the denomination at their conference last year in 2021, to conduct a deep investigation. And that decision was fueled by the outcry inside and outside the denomination after the Houston Chronicle published Abuse of Faith, a six-part investigative story. Among this year's gathering of 8,000 delegates were a lot of reporters, including the Associated Press's global religion reporter, Deepa Barat. She joins me this week to talk about the reaction to the report that detailed how the executive committee protected abusers and tried to silence accusers. And she shares some of the reaction and decisions. She also offers insights gathered from the collaborative reporting team that included Peter Smith, Holly Meyer, and David Crary. But before we jump into the top story, Thipa offers a little background on the denomination. The Southern Baptists are the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. They are descended from Baptists who settled in the American colonies in the 17th century, and then they formed their own denomination in 1845 after a rift with their northern counterparts over the issue of slavery. Uh, that's an important detail, I think, as we move forward. As of 2020, the denomination had more than 47,000 churches and 14.5 million members. So this denomination is massive. 14.5 million members. There's a lot of discussion about those numbers declining, but still, that's a really big number. It's a sizable portion of of the electorate. Yeah, and we are going to get into the declining numbers a little later as we talk about the future. But uh, one important thing to know about the SBC is that it is not a centralized church like the Roman Catholic Church. It's a fellowship of congregations of all sizes located in different parts of the country, from large cities to rural areas. So it consists of mega churches like Pastor Rick Warren Saddleback in Orange County to tiny little churches like Royal and Baptist Church in Dyersburg, Tennessee, where in 2020 the attendance was like 50 people. So that's like the range you have in the SBC. And what makes SBC meetings so unique is also how they are held. So if you can imagine a city council or county board of supervisors meeting, and multiply it by a thousand times. This was my first SBC meeting, so it was a an initiation and an education for me. The floor, when you just go in, is like so huge. Is there a point of order? My point of order is with the original question, so I will wait okay, until the you. amendment. Thank you. Is there another point of order? Ask if there's anyone to speak against the amendment. All right. Is there anyone to speak against the amendment at this point? 
and with more than 8,000 delegates that they call messengers. And there are microphones placed in several aisles so delegates can come up and express their views, raise concerns, and ask questions. And then they follow Robert's rules of order. So my amendment is the recommendation from the committee to change the indefinite Article A to the word any, to add a parenthesis S after recommendation, so it could be singular or plural, depending upon what the task force would determine. And then the definite Article V before Office of Pastor, strike everything Office of Pastor to the end and insert... So it's a democratic process, which is like fascinating of the Southern Baptist Convention... Article 3, Section 1, Subsection... And going back to who the Southern Baptists are, they still remain heavily concentrated in the South. And according to Pew Research Center, SBC figures show that 81% of its members live in the region, including about 2.7 million in Texas, and more than a million each in Georgia and North Carolina. The vast majority of Southern Baptists are white, about 85%, with few black members, 6%, and even fewer Latinos and Asians, like 3%. Or under. So what I saw was reflective of those numbers. Uh, the Southern Baptists are more conservative than their general U.S. population on a majority of the social issues, and sometimes even more so than other evangelicals. For example, a vast majority are against abortion, homosexuality, women taking over the role of pastor, and again, a significant majority say they're against critical race theory. I'm going to put that in quotes. Yeah. Um, Southern Baptists also tend to lean Republican and some lean even further right. And all of that played a really big part in the presidential election at this year's convention in Anaheim and also how they are poised to move forward in the future. Well, let's get into the guidepost report. So if you're not a member of the Southern Baptist Convention and you saw some of the headlines, you heard about an explosive report that had a lot of critical findings that exposed some deep challenges facing this denomination. Can you talk a little bit about that guidepost report and what were some of the key issues that it raised? Hmm. I think explosive is a good word. I think bombshell was a word that was used a lot. A new 288-page report by independent firm Guidepost Solutions alleges that the Southern Baptist Convention's executive committee was stonewalling survivors. After the report, SBC leaders released a secret database listing accused pastors and church staff spanning decades. The guidepost report followed an investigation spanning seven months. How it started was an overwhelming majority of Southern Baptist voting delegates or messengers, as they call them, not just authorized it, but demanded it. A third-party investigation into the mishandling of sexual abuse claims over the last 20 years. And this happened during the SBC's annual meeting in Nashville last year in 2021. And the report was released to the public on May 22nd last month. And it talked about how the SBC's executive committee and thousands of its rank-and-file members stonewalled and denigrated survivors of sex abuse over the last two decades while seeking to protect their own interests and reputation. And the main finding of this investigation was that for many years, a few senior executive committee leaders, along with outside counsel, largely controlled the committee's response to these reports of abuse and were singularly focused on avoiding liability for the SBC. And the report assessed, asserts most importantly that the executive committee uh, maintained, actually a staffer for the executive committee, maintained a secret list of more than 800 Baptist ministers accused of abuse. 
and but the report also said there's no indication anyone took any action to ensure that the accused ministers were no longer in positions of power at SBC churches. So that was a really powerful finding of the report. And the report recommended it had some key recommendations. So one, it said form an independent commission and later establish a permanent administrative entity to oversee comprehensive long-term reforms concerning sexual abuse and related misconduct. Number two, it said create and maintain an offender information system, a database, to alert the community to known offenders. And three, provide a comprehensive resource toolbox, including protocols, training, education, and practical information. And finally, it said restrict the use of non-disclosure agreements and civil settlements, which bind survivors to confidentiality, reducing transparency. So within a couple of days after the guidepost report was published, the executive committee did release the previously secret list of abusers, redacting information about those who were not convicted or where allegations had not been fully investigated or confirmed. And once that report came out, once the guidepost report came out, the sexual abuse task force, which messengers had also asked for at last year's meeting, made recommendations which delegates overwhelmingly approved during the Anaheim meeting this year. Those recommendations include creating a new task force. So the sexual abuse task force would be disbanded and a new task force would be created to implement the report's recommendations, uh, essentially making things more transparent by creating an open database of abusers. And this database would be a way to track pastors and other church workers who are credibly accused of sex abuse. And then the new task force would oversee further reforms uh, within the SBC. Um, I actually spoke with survivors Jules Woodson and Tiffany Thigben, who were present in Anaheim wearing one of those turquoise uh, ribbons representing sex abuse survivors, and they were in tears, actually, when they saw so many hands go up in agreement to execute the task force's recommendations. It's a really, really powerful moment. It sounds like it was, and I can only imagine what the atmosphere was like. That report that you just described, I mean, 800, that doesn't sound like just a handful of bad apples. It sounds like this is a problem that is more pervasive than folks realized. Absolutely. And I think there was a painful recognition of that by, by many delegates uh, who I spoke with on the floor, you know, outside. The guidepost report talked about how survivors spoke of trauma, not just from the initial abuse, Ambreen, but also about the debilitating effects that, uh, that come from the response of churches and institutions like the SBC that did not believe them and, and then essentially ignored them, mistreated them and failed to help them. So I think this year during the meeting, Leaders and delegates alike really lamented this lack of compassion and care for the flock and resolved to do better as they go forward. And also the main problem, according to the investigative report, is that because of SBC's polity, because of the way it's all organized and because they don't have a centralized system and because some people turn the other way, abusers were able to easily fly under the radar and go from congregation to congregation, victimizing more people. And that is the route the denomination is essentially trying to stem right now. When you were describing the recommendations in the Guidepost report, the folks at Guidepost, though, are not in charge of what the convention does next. The task force, I understand, is led by Bruce Frank, and he had to play a role in moving the convention from that shock moment to like what the next steps are. And I'm curious if there was resistance to all those next steps. Yeah. So, so the job of the sex, sexual abuse task force was essentially to make sure that guideposts had everything they needed, first of all, to complete their investigation. 
and then make the recommendations to delegates at the, at, at the annual meeting. Now that they've done that, the new president, Bart Barber, will appoint and bring together a new task force, which the messengers voted to form in Anaheim. And Barber has actually vowed to expedite that process. So Bruce Frank is the pastor of Biltmore Church in North Carolina and led the seven-member task force over the last year. And Frank made an emotional plea in Anaheim for delegates to accept the task force's recommendations. Today we will choose between humility or hubris. We will choose between genuine repentance or continually being passive in our approach to sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention. He called it the bare minimum, but doing more, it's going to take a long time because it's about changing the denomination's entire culture. And he challenged those who would say that these steps interfere with Baptist focus on missions or other objectives. He said this is about protecting the sheep from the wolves, and it's really essential to the denomination's mission. Here's an interesting question he asked the delegates, as some of them did express some resistance to these ideas. He asked them, how are you going to tell a watching world that Jesus died for them when his church won't even do its very best to protect them? I think that was a powerful question that, Mm. you know, I saw a lot of heads nodding then, and I think a lot of them agreed with that. And on the last day of the meeting, the delegates adopted a resolution to publicly apologize for the harm that their actions and inactions caused the survivors of sexual abuse, and that shows that they were in agreement with Frank. Was the apology enough of a first step for the survivors who were there, the folks that you talked to? Was the apology received in the way that it was delivered? I think that's a great question, Ambreen. Um, I think the reaction was layered. I would call it layered because some survivors I spoke to said they were relieved to see this first step in the right direction because for several days, weeks, and months, they were not even sure if it was going to happen. Survivor Jules Woodson um, told me that this was not perfect, but it's a good start. And I think many survivors, including Krista Brown, uh, who was another vocal survivor, are acutely aware that they waited too long for these reforms. Uh, Brown said she was disappointed that they did not do more. Uh, she and others had sought a permanent commission to oversee compliance, but the delegates only voted to create a task force for one year, which they would then renew from year to year. Mm. She actually tweeted, I know people like happy endings, but I'm not feeling it. She said, I feel grief. It's better than nothing, but that's such a low bar. Yeah. And I wonder, as you describe it, what I'm hearing you say is that it's year by year. This has to be mm-hmm. consistently sent back to the convention. And so that brings me to the question about leadership in the SBC. How influential is the president? How much power does he really have? Yeah, the president's role is to protect the rights of the delegates by appointing a few key committees. So his his appointment should reflect the will of the messenger body. For example, the messengers adopted a statement of faith, which was last revised in the year 2000. And the president is required to appoint to committees those who affirm that statement of faith. But even with such a role, the power is decentralized in the SBC. For example, the president can appoint a committee on resolutions, right? But nothing passes without the approval of the messengers. So even though a president can appoint a committee on committees, that's a real thing in the SBC, and influence <laughs> okay. the selection of trustees, <laughs> just saying, uh, influence the selection of trustees to govern the SBC's entities, um, his appointment is three steps removed from the actual appointment of any trustee. 
uh, and all trustees are eventually only appointed by the final vote of the messenger body. So the president is essentially accountable to the delegates. That's mm. how it works. And I understand that Barber's election could not be described as a landslide, that he won after besting uh, a Florida pastor in a runoff election. Mm-hmm. Can you describe the differences between the two, Barber and Askhole? So Bart Barber is a staunch Southern Baptist conservative. Um, he welcomed bans on abortion, opposes critical race theory, and believes that only men should serve as pastors. So he's conservative. There's no question about it. Yet he's called for people to shun divisive rhetoric and find common ground. Um, he's called for an army of peacemakers, at, within quotes, to help unite this divided denomination. Barber, he's 52 years old. He's pastor of First Baptist Church of Farmersville. Um, and he's the first SBC president who leads a small rural church with a weekly attendance of about 320. That means this is not mm-hmm. a mega church pastor. This is not like Rick no. Warren, um, nope. you know, or, or Robert Jeffers from Dallas. This is this is a, a pastor with a much smaller congregation. And Askel, the pastor who he was running against in the runoff? So he's the pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Cape Coral, Florida. And and he, he was viewed as someone who would take the denomination further to the right. And he was backed by the Conservative Baptist Network, which was formed in 2020, stemming from the belief that the SBC was moving forward, moving toward more progressive thinking and moving away from biblical values. So the theme of Askell's candidacy was essentially, we have a book, in quotes. His focus on the Bible uh, has, has actually made him a vocal critic of the SBC. And he's spoken up against liberalism, CRT, uh, women preachers. He believes all these things are leading the SBC away from scripture. And he says the SBC is moving further toward liberalism, in an attempt to pander to the broader culture and attract more people to the church. Hmm. But what the delegates ended up doing, Ambreen, is interesting. They voted for someone who was more similar to the outgoing president, Ed Lytton. Um, and, and based on other elections that took place during the three days, it showed that the larger SBC community is not ready to move further, right? Not yet. Uh, that was evident in the election for the executive committee chair, the vice chair, and the secretary. So members of the executive committee uh, on Monday, like a, a day before the actual convention began, picked Texas Pastor Jared Wellman as their chair. Uh, they picked South Carolina Pastor David Sons as vice chair and Pamela Reed, who's a retired nurse from North Carolina, as, sec- as secretary during a meeting. And all three winners supported waiving the top administrative body's attorney-client privilege uh, to facilitate the guidepost investigation. Um, their challengers, the three challengers, Indiana Pastor Andrew Hunt, Louisiana Minister Philip Robertson, and Missouri Pastor Monty Schinkel, all opposed that. And last year, the executive committee was really embroiled in this heated debate about the issue of attorney-client privilege, disagreeing over whether to allow investigators to access, access memos between lawyers and committee staff members. And ultimately, those who supported granting that access actually prevailed in October. And, and Bruce Frank and many others, including survivors, have said that this access really helped Guidepost to do a more robust investigation, a move that really proved to be crucial to the, to the firm's work. I'm talking with Deepa Bharat. She's a veteran religion reporter who, along with colleagues on the Associated Press Global Religion Team, covered this year's Southern Baptist Convention. That took place in Anaheim, California, June 12th through the 14th. When we come back, 
Barat describes how other trends, including the decline in numbers of the denomination, have caught the attention of leaders and have many wondering about the future of the nation's largest Protestant denomination. You're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Umbreen Khan, and if you're just joining, this week on Inspired by Interfaith Voices, I'm talking with religion reporter Deepa Bharat from the Associated Press's global religion team. Before the break, she described how 8,000 delegates at the Southern Baptist Convention gathered in Anaheim, California a few weeks ago, how they reacted to the Guidepost Solutions report detailing the mishandling of sexual abuse allegations, and the impunity and secrecy that enabled pastors accused of abuse to continue in leadership positions. While the report from Guidepost Solutions offered a series of recommendations, Barath noted that the delegates, known as messengers, did not vote to implement most demands. But on the last day, they approved a formal and emotional public apology to sexual abuse survivors. Now, as we get back to the conversation, we turn to some of the other issues and challenges facing the denomination, including reports that as a fellowship, the overall numbers are in decline, the ongoing calls to address systemic racism, and the controversy over women holding the title of pastor in some churches. I'm curious, did you hear conversations about concerns about the brand of the Southern Baptist Convention or being Baptist um, or concerns over the changes to their demographics, specifically the decline in numbers? Were those things that you heard about um, or saw evident in the conference? Well, I think a lot of people were definitely concerned about declining membership, right? I just have a few numbers here, like the annual baptisms to that 
154,701 in 2021, which is a large number, but it was down 63% mm. from their 1999 peak. And membership stood at 13.7 million, which was down by 16% from their 2006 peak. That's according to statistics from a species affiliate, Lifeway Christian Resources. Numbers have been going down, actually, for more than 10 years now. And Barber was actually asked a question at a news conference after he was elected. And he said tracking membership is actually complicated. And the results can be skewed because it's the actual membership versus how many people are attending church. So he was like, well, I, I'm not sure about the numbers. But he said, you know, as a president, he has limited influence over that. And he said it's really up to the local churches. And according to him, he said, it's the local churches that are going to have to carry the gospel forward and help us grow. Mm. I'm curious if you heard or if you saw signs of the culture that really adheres to this um, allegiance and idea of supporting a patriarchal culture and hierarchy, especially as it relates to women in leadership roles and that they're prescribed um, gender roles, for example, but at the same time seeks to protect and honor the importance of independence of these messengers. Yeah, I mean, just based on what I saw, of course, this is only my first SPC meeting, but, you know, many still overwhelmingly subscribe to those conservative values that you just outlined. I, I don't see any question about that. But um, I, I did also see there were a lot of objections on the floor uh, to Saddleback Church ordaining three women as pastors. Um, and, and that issue came up before the Credentials Committee um, of, of the SPC. Uh, which looked into it and essentially said, well, we need to study what the word pastor means. Because a lot of churches these days, they um, they have women in administrative roles and give them the title of pastors, which is more of a blessing than actually the official role of the lead pastor. So there's a difference between someone being a teaching pastor or a youth pastor, as opposed to being the senior pastor or lead pastor of a church. So they said, well, let's study the meaning of the word pastor. And a whole bunch of people came up to the microphones and protested that because they said, well, in the year 2000, we adopted a statement of faith that very clearly stated who a pastor is and that the woman, a woman is not fit to take on that role. So there were a lot of objections on the floor to Saddleback Church, ordaining three women as pastors last year. And one of the most memorable moments of the meeting, according to me, uh, and I think a lot of people agree, was when Pastor Rick Warren himself stepped up to the microphone and talked about uh, that issue, um, he. it was interesting how he approached it because he didn't directly say that I don't agree with the SBC on this issue, but he said he was extremely grateful for what the SBC has done for his church and how it helped him and his wife Kay grow his me their mega church in Southern California. But it was also evident that he wasn't going to back away from what he did. So the decision of whether to kick out Saddleback Church is still up in the air as delegates decided to put it off by sending it back to the credentials committee. So it probably won't come up again until next year. But it seemed to me like there was agreement that the SPC churches should not have women in lead pastor roles. I spoke to folks, other pastors um, and church board members outside the hall. And, you know, that's that was the impression I got. People were open to having women in leadership roles um, outside of the pastor title, but not as the lead pastor or the senior pastor of the church. Mm. Sexual abuse allegations and how they were handled were definitely leading in headlines. Two years ago, I remember hearing uh, then-President J.D. Greer talk 
often about the need for the church to reflect on its racial history. And I'm curious, fast forward two years, how is that conversation unfolding? What's the reaction been? And how it's impacting younger folks who you saw at the convention? There was some discussion about race, but not a whole lot, because this meeting was just so focused on the issue of mishandling sexual abuse claims. The little discussion that was had about race, the sense that I got was that people are pretty much in agreement that, you know, all races should be included in the Southern Baptist Convention, but they are against, uh, you know, the issue that has been labeled as critical race theory, where um, the the idea of systemic racism that they're not in agreement with. So I think, um, you know, there there's at least a first step that has been taken. And the former president, the outgoing president, Ed Litton, has been very vocal on the issue of racial reconciliation. He said that's the reason he actually stepped away from being president, because he wants to undertake a more local approach to bringing different groups of people together and listening more actively to uh, people of different races and ethnicities. So I think I think there's definitely a conversation that's uh, that's been started, but uh, it, it seems like it does have a long way to go. Deepa Bharath is a religion reporter. Prior to joining the Associated Press Global Religion team, she was a staff writer for the Southern California News Group, covering religion, race, and health for the company's 11 newspapers. Bharath has received fellowships from the International Women's Foundation, International Center for Journalists, and the Center for Health Journalism that's affiliated with USC Annenberg School. Now, among those who follow the religion politics beat, and I'm definitely one of them, there is a lot of speculation about where people go if they choose to leave the tradition of their youth. Polling offers some indications, but not definitive answers, which is why I like to listen and share stories when I hear from guests what their search for meaning looked like. For my next guest, the decision to leave the evangelical Christianity of his youth led him to search for meaning in a different direction. How do people get in touch with their their spirituality in a way that's authentic? And while for some people that includes doing some healing um, from past experiences in religious settings, and that certainly is something that that I encounter with folks. And I've even had my own you know journey of healing myself too. You know from from various more evangelical Christianity Christianities that were offered to me in the past. I didn't leave. Um, I, I chose to to go deeper and to find my own to find a way in my tradition. I'm I'm an ordained Christian minister, um, but I couldn't live in a Christianity, for example, that was exclusive of my brothers and sisters and siblings who are queer or gay. I couldn't live in a Christianity where um, a force that was capable of creating a world such with such beauty as ours 
would also be um, willing to have souls be in a place called hell for eternity. So I had to, I had to decide to leave or I had to decide to, to find my way in, in this tradition. And because I have a deep connection with the spiritual founder of this tradition, um, I chose to find a way. And so I went back to seminary and I began exploring and wrestling uh, with my tradition. And I came to, to terms with the fact that I want to be a part of the, the conversation in Christianity rather than ceding the conversation to those voices, which, which really in the past were, were harmful to me. I'm a straight cisgendered man, um, but my best friend, um, when we were in college years, he um, came out and what, I experienced when that happened was learning about the messaging that he was receiving from the people that were from the church that we both belonged to back home. And I was just, frankly, I was shocked to hear um, how, how judgmental and how damaging um, was the messaging that he was receiving. And it put a real deep, um, hurt into my own life too, because I, I loved that church. I loved those people. And then I was hearing what they were saying and I was just, I was, it was a deep wound. I eventually had to, um, leave that denomination and that church. And, um, through, after a long, you know, series of uh, years and, um, reflection and, and discernment, i I came to the United Church of Christ because it was the denomination that offered a place of full welcome where I just couldn't find that in any other place. Mm. So that was my journey toward the United Church of Christ. The main quest that I note in people is to try to connect with a spirituality that affirms life and that affirms them as people and makes them feel more alive and centered in this world. Reverend Corey Passens is an ordained Christian minister from Thurston County, Washington. When we come back, we talk about his work at Interfaith Works in Olympia, Washington, and one flagship program that is particularly unique. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Stay with us. 